Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive faith community deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Good morning. I'm going to tell you a story today that's based on a folktale from Iran. But before I do that, I want to teach you a word in Persian. It's the only word I know in Persian because it's in this story. And every time it rolls around, if you could say it with me, that would be great. It's more of an expression, an expression of joy. Za. Za. Really good. A little more joy. Za. Great. So once upon a time, there was a king, and this king loved gardens. And whenever he got bored with running the kingdom, he would sneak out and walk through the residential streets of the capital city, admiring other people's gardens. Now one day, he was in a, on one of these strolls in a sort of poor section of town, and he came upon an old woman. She was dressed in sort of old clothes. Her house looked kind of run down and shabby, and her yard was full of weeds, but she had cleared off a spot and dug a hole. She didn't hear the king approaching because she was panting from the hard work of digging, and she she bent down. Her bones creaked and popped, but she bent over that hole, and she took a little sapling, a little baby pear tree, And she set it down in the hole, and then she began to pull apart the root ball and spread the roots. said the king. She looked up startled. He said, aren't you rather old to be out here working in the heat of the day? And she said, "Uh, oh, your majesty, yes, uh, peace be with you. Um, My back agrees with you. But you know, I need to get this plant into the ground before the rain comes. The king went on saying, what's the point? You're going to be dead and in your grave before that pear tree bears any fruit. This king was known for being rather blunt and tactless. She said, well, (laughs) it's true. What can I say? But I don't mind because I can imagine the people who will come after me, my children and my grandchildren, who someday will sit under this pear tree in the shade out of the sun. Someday they will pick the pears and eat the wonderful fruit. And when I imagine those people in the future being so happy, well then, I'm happy right now. When the king heard that, he said, Zah! What a wise thing you've said! Why, I can imagine it too, that future when the tree is big and people after us are enjoying it. He reached under his cloak and he took out a big bag of money and he gave it to the woman and said, here, a reward for your wisdom. Her eyes got big. She said, Zah! And thank you, your highness. You know, she said, You and I just agreed that this tree wouldn't bear fruit for a long time, but look, it's bearing fruit already. (laughs) The king thought that was quite wise. He said, Zah, a 
remarkable insight. And he reached under his cloak and brought out another bag of money for the woman, who of course said, Zah! And she said, you know, your highness, this is really quite an amazing little baby pear tree. You know, ordinary trees give one crop in a season. Mine has given two already this morning. The king laughed at that. Then he bid the woman goodbye and walked back to the palace. But he couldn't stop thinking about what she had said, about doing things today that would make the people in the future happy. And he thought, what if I ran my kingdom on that principle? And so he began to make some changes in the way that he governed. Instead of hoarding his money in the royal treasury so that he could buy jewels and fancy furniture for the palace and make extravagant random gifts to his subjects, he started to spend it on schools and libraries. He, he thought about the future and how important it would be to preserve clean water and keep the soil fresh, and so he made laws to rotate crops and stop dumping, dumping garbage in the rivers. And he realized that if his kingdom was to grow and prosper, there needed to be a constant influx of new ideas. And so he invited people from other lands to come and live there and share their knowledge. Pretty soon, everything he was doing was infected, infected, inflected by this perspective of the long term. Well, after a few years, he wondered if that old woman was still alive. He wanted to thank her for the insight she had given him. And sure enough, he found her, although he didn't know her name. She was in that same garden, sitting on a bench, under a pear tree that was now about this tall and just starting to blossom for the first time. And he told her how her insights had, had changed the way that he ruled as king. And he asked her, since she still seemed to be dressed in rather old clothes and her house didn't look like she'd made any improvements, he asked her, what did you do with that money I gave you? Oh, she said, well, I gave some of it to my children. You know, after I'm gone, they're going to have to maintain this garden. And the rest of it I gave away to anyone who promised that they would take the money and buy a pear tree sapling and plant it in their garden. Well, the old woman lived just long enough to eat the first pear from her tree, and then she died. And the king planted pears all across the kingdom in her memory. And now, generations later, when the king and the old woman are both been long gone, there are pear trees in every field and garden in that country. And whenever someone takes a pear and bites into that sweet, juicy, fresh fruit, they remember the king and that wise old woman, and they say, Zah! Our reading this morning comes from the brilliant author and poet, African-American poet, Nikki Giovanni. It's titled, In the Spirit of Martin. This is a sacred poem. Blood has been shed to consecrate it. Wash your hands, remove your shoes, bow your head. I, I, I have a dream. That was a magical time. Hi-ho, silver away, oh, Cisco, oh, Pancho. Here I come to save the day. I want the world to see what they did 
to my boy. No, 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 I'm not going to move. If we are wrong, then the Constitution of the United States is wrong. Montgomery, Birmingham, Selma, four little girls, constant threats, constant harassment, constant fear, SCLC, Ralph and Martin, Father Knows Best, Leave it to Beaver, Ed Sullivan. How long, not long, but what? Mr. Thoreau said to Mr. Emerson, are you doing out? This is a letter from Birmingham City Jail. This is a eulogy for Albany. This is a water hose for Anniston. This is a thank you to Diane Nash. This is a flag for James Farmer. This is a how can I make it without you to Ella Baker. This is for the red clay of Georgia that yielded black men of courage, black men of vision, black men of hope bent over cotton or sweet potatoes or pool tables and baseball diamonds, playing for a chance to live free and breathe easy and have enough money to take care of the folks they love. This is why we can't wait. That swirling Mississippi wind, the Alabama pine, that Tennessee dust defiling the clothes the women washed, those hot winds the lemonade couldn't cool that let the women know we too must overcome. This is for Fannie Lou Hamer, Joe Ann Robinson, Septima Clark, Daisy Bates, all the women who said, baby, 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 I know you didn't mean to lose your job. I know you didn't mean to gamble away the rent money. I know you didn't mean to hit me. I know the Lord is going to make a way. I know I'm leaning on the everlasting arms. How much pressure does the earth exert on carbon to make a diamond? How long does the soil push against the flesh, molding, molding, molding the moan that becomes a cry that bursts forth, crystalline, unbreakable, priceless, incomparable, Martin, I made my vow to the Lord that I would never turn back. How much pressure do the sins of the world press against the heart of a man who becomes the voice of his people? He should have had a tattoo, you know. Freedom now, or something like that, should have braided his hair, carried his pool cue in a mahogany case, wafted that wonderful laugh over a plate of skillet fried chicken, dropped biscuits, dandelion greens on the side. This is a sacred poem. Open your arms. Turn your palms up. Feel the spirit of greatness and be redeemed. with the world, Father. Living through discrimination in this nation, we have nothing here to be proud of. Depression rising and our health declining, yet the problem rests on it. Immigrants, what's that got to do with us? Fighting one another when we could be working together to make the world better. Think of the children, raising them to hate rather than to be tolerant. It's intolerance that causes us to fear something that is different from us. If we could just realize that we are different than one another, then maybe we could see those things as beauty in each other. See the glory if we just try 
this world that we live in. Man, I can't even contemplate the love that we are not giving to each other. Everyone's killing each other with hatred and violence. We have to stop this right now. We even got the children crying. Father, please give me a reason why we have to live like this. Everyone's broken. Where in this life could we have some bliss? Because if we don't have no bliss, how in the world would we ever fix this? When people don't even care, all we're ever going to do is be aware, but I'll still rise up. We will be strong together. We will get by. Soon we will see the glory if we just try. Hold hand in hand. Let us be one. And when it's all done. So many of you may have read in our online newsletter earlier this week that I'm planning to be away from church for a little while on medical leave, that I need to have some surgery at the end of the month to take care of some physical issues I've been having for a little while. The good news is I'm not sick, and this surgery is going to make me feel a whole lot better, and I'm not expecting to need any treatment after this surgery. So the good news is this will help things be better for me. And as I'm sure you can imagine... This wasn't the timing I was looking for. I was thinking maybe if we could push this out, I don't know, six months, nine months, forever months, that would be better. But my body is pretty smart about what it needs, and now is the time. And you probably saw in the newsletter, if you read it too, that we are in very good hands. We have such a strong and capable board and staff and leadership. Arif and Reverend Ruth and Lauren will be here to lead us, and I would add Karen to that mix, but she's going to be having a baby, so, you know, uh, they're going to be celebrating. Well, she's not having the baby, sorry. Ashley's having the baby <laughs> and doing that work, which is very much important. <laughs> so she'll be out tending to her family while I'm out tending to my body, and you are in very good hands. You're also in each other's hands. So here's what I want to talk about. Justin and I, you may know this, we've been working with a coach for some time, and in particular, over the last few months, we've been working with a coach who's a person of color who specializes in working with white leaders, especially white ministers, who are trying to lead an anti-racist, multicultural institution. So we have these energizing conversations with her, and she helps unlock our brains and draw out all of this creativity and wisdom, and I had a call with her early in January that was exactly like this. So the call started off, and I was just listing everything that was going on at church. I was like, well, you know, Justin's on sabbatical for six months. Ruth let us know she's retiring. We're going to have to move in and out of the building. Oh, the presidential election is coming. There's an impeachment, and now I have to have surgery. It's a little much. I was laying it out. And I kept going, and I said, you know, I know my own tendencies and myself pretty well. I can see some things about me. And I can see that when I get under stress and anxious, that those are the times when I fall back into my old ways, into the ways I've been kind of enculturated into by the society. It's when I tend to fall back into those characteristics of white supremacy culture that live in me in particular. So this is what they look like for me. I get super efficient. 
I am so competent. I'm going to take care of this myself. I'm not going to tell anybody about my struggles or my worries or what's going on. I'm going to figure it out all by myself. Thank you very much. Now, you might imagine this isn't a place that inspires a lot of creativity for me or others. It's a place where I don't listen particularly well and where I don't collaborate particularly well. And so I was outlining this to her, and she smiled at me over the video screen, and she said, can I tell you something that you probably aren't going to want to hear? Sure. <laughs> sure you can. She said, what if, what if everything about what is going on is perfect? Oh. What if all of the elements of this situation that you just lined out for me, even the things you don't want, even the things that are hard, what if this situation is perfect? Ugh. I took a deep breath and I decided to play. Okay, let me use my imagination. What if this situation is perfect for me, for the congregation? Okay, so maybe possibly it could be perfect that I, the one who talks all the time about the importance of interdependence and letting people in when you're feeling vulnerable and blah, blah, blah. What if I actually learn how to do that better myself? Could that be perfect? What if this congregation, in the midst of all of these things that are going on, these exciting transitions and transformations and the loss too, what if this congregation remembered its collective power? What if we remembered, the congregation and the ministry and the staff, all remembered together that this place is one big we rather than any single I? Could that be perfect? What if we as a nation right now, while we are searching, I think in so many ways, for a single savior to take us out of this catastrophe that is our democracy right now? What if instead of looking for one single savior, we remembered that it is within our collective power to make change. Could that be perfect? Maybe, maybe. So as we celebrate the life of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. this weekend, I think it's a perfect time to lift up not just his one prophetic and inspiring life, but to lift up all of the prophetic and inspiring lives that have led us to the liberation we've found and will lead us into the liberation that is still to be developed. We have to remember that any successful movement for liberation is never built on a single I, but rather on a collective we. So the poem that we heard this morning from Nikki Giovanni in this poem, she is calling down the spirit of Martin. She's calling in the ancestors from all of their locations, all the corners, all the generations. She's naming them and remembering them and bringing them into our consciousness. She's helping us remember the ones who brought cool lemonade on those hot summer days, the ones whose hearts were pressed like carbon for generations, only to emerge crystalline, unbreakable, stunningly beautiful into black lives of courage and vision and hope. She's helping us remember the ones who said we will not be moved, I have a dream, the ones who wanted to be able to take care of the people they loved, all of us dreaming of living fully and free, a world where no one is treated as anyone, anything less than anyone else. The poet is calling in the ancestors to fill up our hearts, to ask us to take off our shoes, to bow our heads, to open our arms and lift up our palms, 
to feel the spirit of greatness that has lived through the generations, to feel it in ourselves, that we might join in too. The truth is always that a movement for liberation is never built on one person's back. It is an illusion, this idea of a single leader, and it's a simple story to tell that way, maybe a simpler story, but it's not real. Real life, real movements, real times are more complicated and complex than that. There have always been the less palatable people who get pushed to the side of the single story, the people who played far too important of a role to overlook. There have always been the Bayard Rustins, organizer of the Freedom Rides and the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, an openly gay black man who was so often pushed behind the scenes and out of view. There have always been the Reese Taylors, the black woman who was kidnapped on her way home from church in 1944, who experienced horrific sexual violence at the hands of six white men and who dared to tell the truth about her experience in 1944. It was Reese Taylor's courage that brought the best investigator the NAACP had to Alabama to hear her story, to pick up the investigation that the police had put down. That investigator was Rosa Parks, in 1944, who came to Alabama to hear Reese Taylor's story, to help use that story as a spark to ignite the flames of the civil rights movement long before Rosa Parks ever sat down and refused to get up off that bus in Montgomery. The stories are always more complicated, more complex. There are always more stories to tell because a movement for justice is always more than any single story. The story of a movement for liberation is always about we and never about I. The black movement builder and theologian Charlene Carruthers asks us to think about it like this. Imagine, she says, imagine that there are buckets and that there's one of those really big water towers that has to get filled up. Each of us, and I mean each of us, has a contribution to make toward filling it. Everyone has a role, and no one person can do it all by themselves. Malcolm X is not coming back to save us, she says. There's no Dr. King. There's no Ella Baker. There is no single charismatic leader or organizer coming to save us or free us. But it is collectively possible to liberate ourselves and continue the permanent project toward enabling human dignity. It is collectively possible, she says, to liberate ourselves and continue the permanent project toward enabling human dignity. I love this language that she's using. It is collectively possible to liberate ourselves and each other. This is a permanent project of enabling human dignity. This isn't something that's going to be done in our lifetimes. We hear about that, about that hope, similar to what we heard in the story this morning. This idea of holding out hope for a better future for others, of the inspiration of that. We've certainly heard it in the words of our own Unitarian ancestor, Theodore Parker, who said that the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We've heard it in Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And I want us to be careful, to be really careful about this idea of a better future far off somewhere else. Because that, I will tell you, has been a tool of the oppressor a killer of the imagination for generations. This idea that somewhere out there it will be better, but now this is just the way it is. 
I tell you, when people who are actively being harmed in a situation hear that hope for the future, what they hear is maybe you will help, but not me and not now. So that fire in us has to stay alive, the imagination for radical possibilities right now, not just for some far off future. This last week I went to see the movie Harriet over at Riverview. Has anybody seen Harriet? So good. Tells the story of Harriet Tubman. It's one version, of course, of the story. But there are a couple things in it that have just captured my imagination and stayed with me. One is that there are many points in the movie where other people are trying to tell her what she can and can't do, which is a bad idea to Harriet Tubman, let's just say, where she looks them right in the eye and she says things like, you don't know me. You don't know what I can do and what I can't do. And then she goes out and does something nobody could ever do. There are moments in this movie where you see this imagination come alive in her. She managed to travel alone 100 miles north to escape slavery into freedom by herself. People didn't do that. After a year of making a life for herself, she turned around and went back and got her friends and family. People did not think that way. She would not leave people behind. That was not how people were thinking then. So as the movie unfolds and the story unfolds, there's this moment where Harriet Tubman has escaped up to Canada. She's got her family and friends living up there. And her sister dies, and she comes back to New York. And she gets invited to the home of William Seward, this important politician, white politician. And it's for a gathering of black and white abolitionists to talk about what are they going to do now that the fugitive slave law has been enacted. Now that it's possible for slave catchers from the South to come up and try and grab the people that have made it into freedom. And this group of black and white abolitionists have gathered, and the way it seems in the film is that they've essentially gathered for a funeral of the Underground Railroad. They're there because it's just too hard. 600 miles from Maryland to Canada, it's not possible. We aren't going to be able to do it. The folks who are enslaved, well, they're just going to have to wait for the Civil War. And this is the moment where Harriet comes in, and she tells them, you have forgotten, she said. You have forgotten what the lash of slavery feels like. You have forgotten the sexual violence that our women and children are experiencing. You have forgotten what it is to be afraid like that. You have forgotten, and I will not leave anyone behind. We have to come up with a way. There is a way, and we will find it. And they start working together again, imagining how are you going to bring someone 600 miles to freedom? It's this creativity and courage, not for some far-off future, but for right now that I'm hearing in her life. Which brings us back to me, for the black, to the black theologian Charlene Carruthers, and she writes this. She says, there will always be forces, sometimes even within a social justice movement, that fight to kill the imagination of those actively engaged in the struggle. There are always forces, sometimes even within a social justice movement, that fight to kill the imagination of those who are actively engaged in the struggle, and for that matter, to limit all thinking about radical possibilities. But oppressed people, she says, have always imagined that freedom is possible and their imagination will not be killed. It is within the spaces of imagination, the dream spaces, she says, that liberatory practices are born and grow. These dream spaces, spaces of imagination, 
are those places where we learn how to act and be differently, where we can actually transform. I hear those words, I think of author and activist Adrienne Marie Brown, who says that right now in this country, in this moment, we are in the middle of an imagination battle. The battle is about imagination. And we who believe in freedom, she says, we must build our muscle of imagination because we are living in and only sometimes surviving this imagination battle. She wonders, who did this? Who imagined this world as it is? Who imagined this absence of right relationship to the earth? Who imagined a violent addiction to dominating each other? Who imagined all these myths of superiority? Who imagined these cruel man-made borders? Who imagined that prison bars on jails and schools would create safety? Who imagined people that would tolerate this? We must fuel our imagination, she tells us. In the face of this world, this moment, we must dream and imagine. We need oceanic visions, she says. Oceanic visions where the streams of our lives come together to create something bigger and more powerful, something that can wear down rocks. We need oceanic visions, she says. We counteract the systems of destruction that are out there, first by working on ourselves, creating an abundance, she says, of interior freedom. Creating, carving out, claiming interior freedom. Then weaving collective freedom dreams, dreams that include everyone, dreams we can talk about with one another in poetry and in everyday language. This is a battle of the imagination, she says, and I believe her. Radical imagination, dream spaces, those places we can play and create a new way for ourselves and each other. Carving out that interior freedom where we know who we are, how much value we have no matter what anybody else says, and then going back to get our family and friends and everyone, leaving no one out as we work collectively for our liberation in this permanent project of enabling human dignity. So this is where we are, this battle of imagination, this opportunity to create something new, whatever the circumstances are, exactly as they are. What if we could play? What if we could imagine that everything we need is right here, all the people we need are in the room, what if we could imagine that the circumstances we are living in are just right? What new thing is wanting to emerge? What new way of being and living? May these be our questions. May this be our battle for imagination, for dreams, for a better future right now. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.